If you have your Bibles, let's go ahead and open them up. John chapter, 1 John chapter 5. Uh, if you made your way to John chapter 5, you would be confused by the verses here in a little bit. Uh, John chapter 5. Uh, we've spent uh, 11 Sundays, not consecutively. There's been a couple of uh, times where we kind of jumped off board and then we jumped back on board. But we've spent 11 Sundays uh, traveling through these five chapters uh, in the the letter of First John. And uh, today we arrive at the end of that. And so next week we'll be doing Serve Sunday. Uh, and then the July the 7th, I think. That's, that sounds right. Um, calendar nerd back there. Uh, July 7th we will have, uh, we do this every year, an all-family communion service. Uh, and then the following two weeks we'll be doing Second uh, John and Third John. Uh, just again to complete the tea set, um, and so, but but John does, and we've said this a couple times now, and hopefully uh, you're tired of me saying it uh, because you know it by heart now. But John does one thing incredibly well. Everything that he writes, uh, everything that he says that makes its way into the Bible, does one thing, and it does it well. He says he says when it comes to your life, put your eyes on Jesus. And never take them off. He says you constantly, in the actions, in the emotions, in the reactions of your life, put your gaze on Jesus and never take it away. Because he knows something about us. He knows the moment we take our gaze away from Jesus, we find ourselves in some very troubled waters. And so he says, he says never do it. He's, and that this is important because as, as we listen to the words of Jesus and the model that he sets in the Gospels, we learn that He has this incredibly great desire to glorify the Father by fulfilling the task that He's been sent to do. And so, so Jesus comes uh, in the face of a prevailing Jewish culture and He looks at them and out of love He tells them, you misunderstand the heart of the Father. You do. You don't understand. In fact, uh, speaking specifically to Jewish leaders, He says, he says you walk into the door and you think that your religion is about power. It's about control. And what you do is you create a God that is a false God, and you make him small enough where he can fit in your pocket so that you can lord it over people. And he consistently comes in and says, let me explain to you God's heart for you. And so we get to walk through that. And as he does that, what we find is that that the Father is one who He calls for a holiness while offering forgiveness. He cares about His children to the point of making the way to restore the relationship that, that sin broke uh, because of us. And, and then uh, He provides this way in sending Jesus. This is all Jesus tells us in the Gospels. And this is what the rest of the Word uh, confirms and so so as we arrive in First John, what we get to do is we get to pull up this chair to the table of God, and we're invited to explore how, when it comes to life with God, we essentially are being asked to do three things. And we've again we've said this a lot during this series that that the three things that we're essentially being asked to do is to believe in Jesus, to obey God, and to love others. All three of those things that we would believe in Jesus, that we would obey God, and that we would uh, love others. And we start with knowing Jesus because obedience and love flow from that. 
that we don't have a concept of it without understanding who Jesus is. And so to help us better understand these instructions, John has given us two word pictures we've kind of worked through. Uh, and the first one he opens up, and it, he says, God is light. Uh, and that his light is revealing to us what is lurking in the darkness. Uh, and so, so anytime we, we say God is light and then immediately follow that with we're called to obey him, we think, and our natural instinct is, I should say, is to think that he's withdrawing freedom from us. Uh, that really what he's doing is he's keeping us from having all the fun that we want to have. And what we find in the Bible is we understand the heart of the Father isn't that he's removing any of that from us. In fact, he's showing us where true joy is found, where true freedom is expressed. Because as we walk in the darkness, what we don't realize is that the things lurking are starting to weigh you down. And they're starting to keep you back. And they're actually, as the Bible will say, are killing you. And so we walk through this word picture that, that God is light and He shines His light into our lives so that we can see the healthiest way to live. And then, beginning in John chapter 3, as we're called to respond to God as light, He introduces another word picture. And He says, let us consider the way God has loved us. And so He says, God is love. That God has created love. He sets the standard of it. He models it for us. He comes in and he, he even in the most difficult and uh, painful moments of our lives, when he disciplines us, he does it as a father who cares deeply about his kids. And so, so we, as we've arrived in, in chapter 5, uh, John's been helping us uh, greatly uh, by, by giving us some indicators of, of of knowing if we're responding correctly. Uh, because isn't that ultimately what, what you're trying to reconcile in your own heart? Like, I, I do love Jesus, but am I loving Jesus in the right way? And so John comes in at the end of this letter, and he really helps us out. And he says, says he starts it by saying, let me give you some birthmarks of people who have been changed by the gospel of Jesus. And, and it's, simple, it's some simple beliefs that we hold close. Things like, like we believe that Jesus is the Messiah. We believe that we have been born of God. We, we love the Father, and by extension, we love His family. We, we obey His commands, not reluctantly, but we obey them because we know that doing so brings honor to His name. We, we have overcome the world. Uh, not, not because you're strong and capable, but because Christ has done that for you. That everything revolves around Jesus. And we believe in Him we can have life. And so, so these, these last nine verses are very helpful to us today. So incredibly helpful. Because what we get to do is we get to come in and John is going to tell us something that God told him. And what it is is simply this. Here are five things... I want you to never forget. If you are a child of God, these five things will always be true of you. They will always be available to you. And my guess is, as I've been kind of working through these five things that, that uh, John is going to give us, um, is that uh, there, there's going to be a moment here where you, where you possibly get the warm fuzzies of like, yeah, that's true. I'm on board with that. 
And then there's a possibility at the same time that you're going to walk in and you're going to feel this, this sense of being exposed of like, yep, I've just been found out. And both of those things are happening at the same time. And it's, it's entirely possible because this, is, this has been my experience with this passage the last two weeks. Because a lot of the doubts and a lot of the questions that I bring into the table with God are exposed based on how I react to these five truths. And so, let's pray and then we will, we will finish the uh, uh, letter out and then we will all have cupcakes. Um, so, somebody tell Chris, can you go get some cupcakes from Walmart? Um, no? Sorry guys, we won't have any cupcakes today because Chris is being a jerk. Alright, let's pray. Father, we come to you. We thank you today because your word is true. And we can rely on it. We can walk in it. We can be guided by it. And we pray as we get to experience these truths that we are, we are to hold close to us. That your Holy Spirit would bring in some courage. That your Holy Spirit would bring in some clarity. And that we would be able to see your Son more clearly. We would be changed by Him. In Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, Amen. Alright, let's start. Truth number one. Alright, there's five truths that God wants His kids to remember. Truth number one is this. We can know that we have eternal life. We can know that we have eternal life. We get this uh, from verse 13. Uh, John says this, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. It's desperately important that Christians would understand that after we are done with this part of living, we aren't done living. Vitally, it shapes everything. In fact, two weeks ago we ended on this verse and we spent a, really a considerable amount of time on this topic. And we said that, that, that when we have Jesus, uh, that means that, that Jesus does His thing for us. And so, in a very real sense, this entire letter has kind of been pointing to this specific verse. That in Jesus we have eternal life. That we can walk in confidence of faith that God is truthful to us. And that He has secured us and forever we are His children who are in His possession. And now, differing times in your life, you will run across the concept of eternal life in different ways. If, when, when you're young, you're like, well, I'm going to live forever. That's why I can jump off of roofs into swimming pools. You know, there's no consequences to that amount of stupidity, right? Uh, that's a true story, by the way. Um, and when you get older, you start to realize, okay, I've, I've lived some time and I can feel my body breaking down or... I've been to a doctor and they have told me some things about trying to prolong and things I need to change if I don't want this to end. Sometimes we, we run into these moments where there is death around us and we are slammed with the concept of what comes next. And one of the benefits that we find in the Bible is this assurance that we are granted eternal life in Jesus. That you live, the Bible will say, in either eternal state in the presence of God or you live in eternal damnation 
separated from God. Those are the two destinations. And so, so what we find here in verse 13 is, is very helpful for my walk because what John's been telling me is that it's possible to have eternal life and at the very same time that I can have life with God and yet I can also have questions and doubts because that's what he's been addressing to the church, that, that we don't have to always have it together. However, John wants to assure us that you don't have to walk in doubt, that you can walk in assurance. And so he provides these tests throughout this letter. In fact, chapter 5, when he says in verse 13, these things, uh, I think he's specifically talking about what he said in verses 1 through 12, but really I think the theme of this, this letter of obey Jesus, I mean, know Jesus, obey God, love others, it can be found in verse 13, that, that those who believe in Jesus uh, and pursue obedience and love others, they are assured that they have eternal life right now, today, forever. So, so John says, you don't have to doubt if you don't understand every word in the Bible. You don't, you don't have to walk in a doubt if, if you don't know all of the... Um, promises that God gives you in the Bible. You don't have to, to live in limbo if you fall into a momentary sin. You can always flee to Jesus. In fact, John will say, never leave. You cling to Him because you have found your source of great treasure. So He is the Word of life. He is eternal life. And so in this fleeing, we remember that, that feelings come and go and feelings, they can... They can be deceiving, right? Have you ever been deceived by your feelings? Right? No? Yes, yes. Ever had ice cream at 11.30 at night and been like, yep, that was a good idea. Right? So, so my confidence is constantly in the Son of God. No one else is worth believing. No one else. And this is what he says to us in John chapter 10. He says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish, ever. It says, No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And so, so knowing that we have eternal life, what, what it does for me, at least what I think it should do for me more consistently as I grow up in Jesus, is that it should soften our grips on the passing securities that we cling to in this life should just soften that grip. That, that we don't have to be as concerned with the many pursuits that we allow to distract us. In fact, think about uh, the moments that, that serve as distractions in your walk with God at this moment. Just think about that. What, what is distracting you from your walk with God? Maybe it's, it's your schedule. Maybe you say, I don't, I don't have margin to fit God into the equation of my life right now. Or better yet, if you're a parent, maybe it's your kids' schedules. Say, well, we, we got to get them to this practice. We got to get them to that tournament. We got to Uber them around town because we have nothing better to do with our lives. Right? I've never seen Sharon look at Luke faster in my whole life. <laughs> Maybe it's your finances. Or really, it's not your finances. Maybe it's specifically your pursuit to make more money so you can go do more stuff. 
or you can go get more stuff, or while we're talking about stuff, maybe it's your stuff. Because, because all our stuff is, is indications of where our security lies. So the more we fight for our stuff, the more we hold on to our stuff, the more we hoard our stuff, we reveal something about our heart and our trust with, with God. And, and so, so the, the promises, so and what, what comes, what, what comes that after your last breath on earth is the most important question you will ever attempt to reconcile. It is. In fact, the promise of God and eternal life through Jesus takes all of the anxiety out of what comes next. It, it softens the fears of seasons of life when the waves get choppy and they get big and they go over your head. Because we, we live with this assurance that even, even the greatest moments we have in this life, okay? And think of yours. Let's just take a moment. Think of your greatest moments when kids are born or after the, after the kids come back from the nursery after being cleaned up. All that before, gross stuff. But kids and, and marriage and friends and, and adventures, think of all those great moments and understand this. All of them pale in comparison to standing in the presence of God united with the children of God, as we get to see glories unimaginable. And not just like we went to a concert and we hung out and we showed up early and we stayed late. No. You get to, get to be in that presence of God in a perfected state forever. Forever. And God says, I want you to remember you never lose that because of the Son. You are assured it. Number two, we can know uh, that God answers prayer. We can know that God answers prayer. And it says this in verses 14 through 17. And this is the confidence that we have toward Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of Him. And this is going to seem disconnected, but it's not. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him... What's that word? Life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. Tell us how you really feel, John. All wrongdoing is sin. But there is sin that does not lead to death. Now, now John has addressed prayer uh, a couple weeks ago, a couple chapters back in, in chapter 3. And, and he tells us that basically um, God answers our prayers when there are two things at practice. That, that number one, that we are keeping His commands. And then that number two, we are doing the things that please Him, which really walk in step with keeping his commands. And what happens now is, is he brings in a third point. And he says that, that we must ask according to whose will? Nobody knows. You're like, oh, God's will. This is why sometimes your prayer life doesn't work. Because you say, and in my name, amen. So he says that we ask according to God's will. And I think that, that in itself, that statement in itself, trips up a lot of us. 
Because what happens is, is we, we think of and we treat the will of God as this mystical undertaking. And it's really much more simple than we tend to make it. That the will of God is that your life would serve as a response to what you gain through Jesus. That's the will of God. Will this action, will this decision, will this reaction, will it serve as a life that is being changed because of who Jesus is? Well, whether it be in this city or that city, this job, that job, this car, that car, this opportunity, that opportunity. I think so many times in life we struggle and we say, I just don't know what the will of God is. And he says, pick one. Just make a decision. Now, if your life is reflecting what I'm doing through your life, then I think you will find that some of those decisions become easier. Should I rob a bank or should I deposit money into the bank? Yeah, see, rob the bank. No, the other one. But ultimately, when, when, when it comes to the will of God, and I don't mean to try to overly simplify it, because that's, it's, it's, it's a, we should chew on it. We should be asking some questions. But I think one of the big ones is, am I living with the desire to grow deep with Jesus and make Him known? And so, so I, I believe when we're really honest with ourselves and when we struggle with God's will, that, it, that it's great right up until the point where God wants us to do something that we really don't want to do. And, and so it's entirely possible that God's will may be different at times from what you want. It is. In fact, uh, I, I believe this, though, that it will always be better than what you want, even if you are the four-year-old throwing the temper tantrum on the floor saying, but I really want it. And he says, no, you don't want it. You just think you do. In fact, Romans, Romans 12 tells us something about God's will. It says it's, it's good and it's pleasing, and it's perfect. Okay? So it's good, it's pleasing, and perfect. So let's, let's put that one up to your will. And the Bible says, it led you to your own destruction. That is not good, it led you to slavery. That it's not good, that slavery led you to death. And that death has separated you from God. And I think any moment you want to put those two wills up to one another, you're not in the same weight class. You're not. You get demolished every single time. And then verses 16 and 17, God gets, uh, John gets very specific about prayer. So, so 14 and 15 are about petitions, about asking God for things and asking God about things. And then verses 16 and 17, we're talking about intercession. We're talking about these moments where, where we come in. In fact, uh, the issue in particular is seeing someone who is in sin. In fact, the, the original text, some of the word, the word, or at least some version of the word sin, appears seven times in these uh, three verses. And verse 16 is one of the most in difficult verses, I think, to interpret in all of the Scripture. And so anytime you get to a verse like this, you have to approach it very humbly. And you have to do so very carefully. Because John is addressing a brother who is sinning a sin that's not leading to death, and then he addresses someone who sins, and that sin brings death. And so, so we have to ask the question, okay, is, is John speaking of physical death or spiritual death? And then secondly, does he have a Christian in view in both instances, or is the second situation talking about an unbeliever? 
And, and so, so I, I think John has spiritual death in mind because we're all going to die regardless if we're saved or not, right? And so I think he has a spiritual death in mind in two different persons in view. And so his argument is that, that brothers and sisters in Christ can fall into sin. They can do that. But their salvation and their spiritual death is not at stake because of something we said about Jesus way back in chapter 1, that He is our propitiation. He is the payment for our sin. He is our advocate before the Father. And so people who believe in Him have eternal life, and that doesn't get taken back away. So, so if you see them sin, if you see your brother sin, okay, there's this really incredible practice that John tells us to do. He says, before you talk about them, you take it to God. And he says, you pray that God would bring life into their dead hearts. You pray that God would move mightily in powerful ways. And so, so, so talk to God first about them. Pray for their restoration because this is always God's will. Pray to the Lord. He will give life. He will restore the joy, the vitality of their salvation since those sins don't lead to death. And then John addresses a sin that he says leads to death. And interestingly, he doesn't say the one who is committing this sin is a brother. He doesn't say it. Before he says brother, now he doesn't. And so, so I think, in, in what John says, it really doesn't matter to pray for them because it's not going to make any difference. And that's why 16 is terribly difficult to interpret. So the question is, what, what's the sin that leads to death? And, and typically there's three views in mind. That number one, it's a specific deadly sin that the person says, I know this is wrong, but I don't care that it's wrong. That, that secondly, there's blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Uh, we find that in Matthew 12, Mark 3. Uh, this is deliberate, knowledgeable, willful, verbal, continual rejection of the truth which the Spirit bears witness of. It's a, it's a hardening of your heart. And then thirdly, it's just the total rejection of of the gospel of Christ. Now, these other two lead to this. That this is the sin of, of false teachers who willfully uh, and verbally and continually uh, reject the truth. They oppose the witness of God concerning the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And so, so here's, what, here's what happens, though. Okay? God wants you to remember that He always answers prayers. And so, so knowing that God answers prayers, what it should do is it should help us grow up in the things that matter most in life. It's what, it, it's what it should do. That we stand before, we get to speak to a majestic, perfect, holy, omnipotent, omniscient God. And we come in and we say, please let the Rangers beat the Royals. So if God really does answer prayers, here's the question. Why do we continually pray so incredibly small? This is, I told you, I get exposed. I get exposed in these verses. Number three, and we're gonna, we'll, we'll speed this up. We can know victory over sin. God looks at us and He says, I want you to remember that you have victory over sin. You are not a victim to sin. You have victory over over sin. But it's not because of how great you are. It's about how great Jesus is. Verse 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. 
That can pin some of us. But he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. That's big. So verse 18, John, John makes three powerful affirmations that, that assure us once again of our victory over, over, over sin. Number one, we know that the person born of God does not keep pursuing sinful things. They don't. They don't. That, that sin is no longer the pattern of their life, of our lives. That John is affirming the purity of our lives. And you need to understand that. That you can't mix both of those waters. Because it doesn't work. And we're not, we're not talking perfection. We're talking about something that, that he addresses in chapter 3, that, that we pursue holiness because it's part of growing up in Christ. We make tough decisions. Then number two, the second thing is, is that the one who is born of God keeps or protects him. I love this verse because it takes an important reading because we'll, we'll think that there's only two people involved when actually there's three. Right? So, so he says this, you, you have us and God. Right? Everyone who has been born of God, right? And then the action is that we would not keep on sinning. And then the verse uh, introduces our protector. It says, He who has been born of God protects him, us. And so Jesus is the He who protects us. Jesus keeps us. Jesus, by the work on the cross, obtained our salvation. And now by His work in heaven, He maintains our sanctification, our salvation, that, that Jesus Christ, the eternally begotten of God, protects me and keeps me safe. And then that brings us to our third promise. And then there's a reason why we talk about Jesus before we talk about the third promise. That the evil one does not touch me. It doesn't. That, that the word touch has this idea of, of grabbing hold of something with the intent of harm. And this is what the word says, that Satan may grab at us, he may tempt us through doubt, he may tempt us through friends, he may tempt us through people who fall away, he may tempt us through false, enti- uh, false enticements or, or idols or worldly allurements, but, but because of the power of Christ, he can't take ownership of us. He can't do it. And so, so knowing that God has given us victory over sin through Jesus should help us see the emptiness of so many of our temptations. So many that, that His light exposes the weakness and the emptiness of, of what seems strong uh, and rich in the darkness. Then number four, we can know that we belong to God. We can know that. Verse 19, we, we, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. That's revealing. We sit very passively and we listen to these verses and we're like, hmm, yeah, John sounds like a smart guy. But he says, he says, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of evil. And that's, that's, a very, that's a stark contrast to the safety of the believer and then the whole world who rests in the power of the evil one. That, that we are safe and the world is a slave. We are safe and the world is, is a slave. And this is why I'm so intrigued um, when, when the church uh, in, as a whole um, rises up about worldviews and values that are 
sinful. Like we're, we're surprised by them. In fact, I, I read a rant the other day. This is, this is always fun when you get to read rants on um, the Facebook. And it was a person who, who has, they were upset over a laundry detergent commercial, which I was, at first I'm like, yeah, because that is something worth being upset about, laundry detergent. But apparently the commercial uh, had a, a pretty, what they called a, uh, an aggressive, hold on, I, I had to write it down, yes, they were aggressively pushing an LGBTQ agenda and that they really should keep their um, sinfulness out of my commercial breaks. Okay, so we're on the same page. That sounded stupid, right? They should keep their sinfulness out of my commercial breaks. And I'm like, I don't know what you're watching, but I'm fairly certain, probably not as clean as you want it to be, okay? Um... And, and and I couldn't help but I do I love the church I love the church but I couldn't help but chuckle uh, in in a sense because the word the word tells us that we are of this world but we are oh, I'm sorry we are in this world but we are not of this world that that when it comes to the worldview and society we are called the aliens okay. We are the ones that are just here temporarily. And so I, I think it's interesting when, when the church rises up and, and we act as if we don't realize that we are not under, that the world is under the power of the evil one. They are. And so when a sinful person does a sinful thing, guess what? It's because it's their sinful nature. They don't know any better. It's why you have friends who you can see and they're hurting and they're searching and they're going to places and empty wells and you say, well, what are you thinking? That's not going to lead you to anywhere that's going to be helpful or healthy to you. And it's because they know no better. And here's what I thought was when I got to the end of the rant and I chuckled and then I just kept moving ahead. This thought occurred to me that, that anger was the response when I believe sorrow should have been. That our hearts should break over verse 18. Because we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. That should break our hearts, that should open our eyes, that should open our mouths, that should, that should liberate our hands, that should move our feet into places where it's incredibly dark and dangerous and painful because there are people who are dying. And we rant because sinful people do sinful things. Knowing, knowing that we, we belong to God should serve us well as we strive to break free from these smaller roles that the world offers us. You've not been saved to be small. Though you can be small and do big things. We'll start wrapping this up, Chris. You gave me the wrap-up. You said, hey, cupcakes are here, so let's go. Number five. Number five, I know, Scout, I'm getting there. We can know what is true. 
we can know what is true. Verse 20. 2021. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given... This is, this is how John ends the letter, by the way, okay? He says, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God in eternal life. And then, lastly, again, He comes in and He says, Little children, keep yourselves from idols. And there's no, like, peace out, catch you on the flippity-flip, see you, John. His last words to this church at this time, keep yourselves from idols. So it's not surprising. John, John begins with Jesus at the, at the beginning of this letter and he ends with Jesus and, and he affirms that Jesus is the Son of God, that He has come. He has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. That because of our relationship with Jesus, we can understand the truth of the Gospel. We are safe from the claws of the evil one, that, that, that we know the Father, we abide in Christ alone. And, and so since there is a true God, there, there are also false gods. And it's easy to, to see them more in, in the Old Testament where there were literal poles and altars and bells that people would worship. But if we're honest, it's, it's equally easier to see idols in our own lives. Now, the natural makeup of our living rooms leads us to idol worship. <laughs> if you think about it, right? I heard a pastor talk about this one time. He said that all of us sit in our own pews in our living rooms and we look at an idol. Some of us can't make it home because we're pursuing an idol of either stuff or significance or power. Some of us have a hard time identifying the idol because we don't understand how to break free and so John comes in and he says, little children, and he does that so lovingly. And he says, keep yourselves from idols. Be on guard, John says, from God's substitutes. That, that Tim Keller put it this way. He helps us see how idolatry is sin when he says, the ultimate reason for any sin is that something besides Christ is functioning as an alternative righteousness or a source of confidence and is thus an idol. And it's a, it's a pseudo-savior which creates inordinate desires. And so, so really, any, any desire, any effort to earn our own salvation creates idols of, of necessity. That, that we can make our career or our morality or our marriage or our children our fundamental confidence in life. Our wisdom and our power. And, and then those things become idols which look to us instead of Christ for our salvation. So idolatry, is, it's, it's anything you love and enjoy and pursue more than God, more than Christ. 
And I'll tell you where that becomes hardest. We, we talked about this at the end of two weeks ago. That, that if you get to heaven and you say, hey, hold on, I need whatever that is. I need that with me too. That's an idol. I need my blankie. It served me well. I've, hold on, I've been holding on to it my whole life. I don't know who I am apart from it. And God says, you don't know who you are with it. You don't. And so, so we come in. We understand that, that an idol says we are true when God says only Christ is true. An idol says they will give life when God says only Christ provides life. Idols promise and they, but they can never deliver, whereas God says Christ both provides and delivers. So guard yourself from the idols of power, control, comfort, approval, position, applause, pleasure. Your heart will never be satisfied and at rest with any of these false gods. Only Christ can. And Jesus, Jesus says it perfectly, and I think this is a fitting way to end First John. He says this in John chapter 4. He's talking to this, this lady by a well. And they're having a, a very spiritual debate. And he looks at her and he says, Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. Will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Like that's, that's what we get. That's what we get in Christ. John says, that's why, that's why I wrote this letter to you guys. He writes this letter to this home church, and it's just like us. And he says, you need to know these things, that God is crazy about you. That He cares deeply for you. He provides for you in the best of ways. Then he gets to the end, and he says, guard your heart. Guard your heart. I try to say this to my kids as much as I can. They're going out with their friends. I always say, guard your heart. Guard your heart. Because I can't be there to tell you, hey, that's a bad idea. And this is where John tells us. Because as you leave, as you walk out the door, guard your heart from idols. Our desire this week is to love God. Bye. Please stand with me. make a couple things available. If you need prayer this morning, we want to pray with you. It's one of the most important parts of this church is praying with one another. Maybe you have felt the tension of being in two different worlds. We want to help you walk in the light. We want you to help you uh, understand that God is love. And if you have questions about that, we, we want to listen. We want to help walk you through that. Let's pray. Father, we thank You this morning that You love us. We thank You that You've given us these five promises that we don't have to wonder about who we are in Yours and in You. But that we are Yours and that You love us and You protect us and You provide for us. 
pray we wouldn't forget these things. That though we are not motivated by having eternal life, that we are most motivated by being known by You and being saved by Your Son. We wait in eager expectation to celebrate with the saints and the angels. To declare Your worth. We thank You that You love us in spite of us at times. And that we are secured not in our own abilities, but by Yours and Your Word. We love You. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.